So last week we began the series, but we were not in the letter. Last week we spent some time in Acts because, as I said, Acts often gives us something of the background of the New Testament epistles. It's a good place to go hunting if you want to understand something behind the letters that were written to the churches. Ephesians is no exception. In fact, there's an awful lot written about Ephesians in Acts, and we could spend many more weeks there. But we just spent one week there looking at Paul's ministry to the Ephesians and made some cursory observations that will hopefully set us up for a good reading of the letter. By way of review, we noted that the Ephesians were well taught. Paul had been able to spend many, many hours with them, day after day, teaching them over the course of perhaps three years. And as you read Ephesians, there is no hint of any problem in the church. They haven't gone away from his teaching. It seems like more likely that the the letter he writes is simply a summation of the teaching that he had given them. And I commended this letter to you as a rich, rich theological discourse of the gospel and one that is worthy of our attention. Uh, Our desire is to get this word inside of us, that it would transform our lives. We observe that Paul proclaims to the Ephesians what I termed as the cosmic triumph of the gospel. The background in Ephesus to Paul's ministry was one of the occult, not primarily Jewish opposition, but Jewish uh, opposition of magic practices, dark arts, which was common in the ancient world. That was the theological backdrop. Paul was working against that to proclaim the gospel. And of course, the gospel triumphed. Many in the church in Ephesus will have been converted from such a way of life. So Paul writes to them, and the particular way in which he communicates the gospel in this letter is to remind them that it triumphs over all authorities, all earthly powers. There is a cosmic, universal aspect to the way in which Paul talks about the gospel in Ephesians specifically. That is a great encouragement for us, especially in these dark times. We noted that Paul centers on the church in the letter to the Ephesians. He labors the church, perhaps more than any other doctrine. Lots of discussions about what is the salient theme in this letter. I would argue that it is the church. Why? Because in that theological backdrop of the occult, foremost was the Artemis cult. The Artemis temple is there in Ephesus, and the Ephesians were beginning to feel the heat for their faith. The silversmith didn't like the fact that many were converting to the way and they were losing their business. And so Paul reminds them, shores them up in their faith, and says there is this enormous temple outside, but the church is the temple of God. It is the temple, it is the place to be. Don't grow faint-hearted, grow weary, but be all about the local church. And then finally, we noted that Paul taught the Ephesians to love. He taught them to love because that is one of the responsibilities that comes to us as we are saved. 
And it is one of the primary ways in which that cosmic triumph of the gospel works itself out through the church. We have to take hold of our responsibilities in order that the gospel would shine through us. And Paul teaches them to love as a, as a means by which God's glory will be put on display in the local church. And that then, of course, has implications for us and the way in which we live our lives, the way we think about the church. We come now to the letter itself. One of the difficulties when you interpret any text is simply to decide what is the text. What I mean by that is the first step involved in interpreting any text is to decide what the, the delineation of the text is. Where does this unit of thought begin and where does it end? That's the first step that any biblical interpreter would take so as to understand what the text says. You need to know where the text begins and ends. Verse 3 is unmistakably the beginning of a new unit. Verse 3 is the beginning of a new line of thought for Paul. He begins a new sentence and carries it on for many, many, many verses, as I'll talk about next week. What that means then is that I am left with verses 1 and 2 for this evening's sermon. <laughs> I would like to be preaching more. I don't imagine that I would struggle for things to say as it relates to verses 3 and following. I shared with a friend this morning that I have been earnest in prayer this week. As I thought about verses 1 and 2 and what I might say to you from them. But as is always the case with God's word, there is far more going on in these verses than you might initially expect. As I thought about these verses, I've come to see that there is a lot that Paul is saying by way of his opening greeting to the Ephesians. He does three things in his opening greeting. He says that he is an apostle. He asserts his apostleship by the will of God. He addresses the Ephesians specifically as saints. And then he gives what is his, his initial desire for them. That is that grace and peace would be to them. And it's on that last thought that I want to spend most of our time this evening. Before we get there, just a few comments about items one and two. Paul begins by identifying himself, specifically as an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is not how we typically begin our letters. We finish our letters with our identification. In the ancient world, you would begin a letter by identifying yourself. But notice, Paul identifies himself by drawing attention to his office, that is, the apostolic office. To be an apostle in the New Testament, you would have seen the risen Lord Jesus and been appointed as an ambassador for him. What is an apostle? It is an authorized ambassador for Christ. The apostolic office is limited to the New Testament era. It is not an office that continues today. If you ever see a church that makes claims to have an apostle or apostles, it is not 
practicing biblical ecclesiology. Paul identifies himself as an apostle because that then qualifies everything in this letter as the Word of God. That's the implication. As he says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That functioning there is a point of emphasis. It's not by my own choosing nor somebody else's choosing, but God did this. He met with the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. God appointed him to this office. As Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians of that reality, it then qualifies everything in this letter as the very word of God. Paul is a vessel. In so much as he is an apostle, he is a vessel through which God spoke. So all six chapters of Ephesians is the very word of God. That means it's living and active. We've rehearsed that truth already this evening. It means it's inspired. It means it's inerrant. It means it's sufficient. And it means that it is to be authoritative over our lives. Some years ago, our family came up with a song to try and teach our kids all about the Word of God, and what is true of the Word, what are the attributes of the Bible. And I'm not going to sing it for you now. I'll just tell you the lyrics. Because the Bible is inspired, therefore it is inerrant, and it is sufficient and authoritative. And something I try to labor to the children is the connections Not just the realities, the attributes, but the connections. They flow in a sequence because it's inspired. It's breathed out by God. Paul was carried along by the Holy Spirit and he wrote words that were breathed out by God. It's inspired because of that. Therefore, it's inerrant. It stands to reason we serve a perfect God. There's no blemish in him. He doesn't make mistakes. Therefore, because it's inspired, it's inerrant. You can trust this word. There is no mistakes in this. Because it is inerrant, therefore it is sufficient. This is another attribute of the Word of God. It's sufficient for life and godliness. The Word is is able to bear your burdens. It is able to save and it is able to sanctify. It is able to give instruction in accordance with the will of God. It is sufficient. You don't need to hold the Bible on a par with other sources so as to know how to live a life pleasing with God. You don't need anything else save the written word of God in order to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And then finally, it is authoritative. And perhaps that's what Paul had most in his mind as he wrote to the church in Ephesus, because this is the word of God written by an apostle, this word is to sit over you. It is to sit over your life and instruct you. It will teach you what is sin, what is right, what is wrong, What is wise and what is folly, this word is to be authoritative over you. Now from there, he goes on to 
identify the addressees of the letter, namely the Ephesians. But again, notice he doesn't merely say to the Ephesians. He draws attention to a fact that he knew and they knew that they are saints. They are saints, meaning they have been set apart. The root of the word is the same root in the original language as from which we get the word sanctify, to set apart, to make holy. Simply stating not that these Christians were elevated above other Christians, that is not the true meaning of saint, but everyone who is truly in Christ Jesus is a saint, is set apart, is made holy, declared by God to be holy. That is the meaning of the word saint. And he qualifies it. He goes on and says those that are faithful. Now, there are actually a number of ways of reading the second half of that line. Another alternative way is to simply read to the saints who are in Ephesus, that is those who are believing in Christ Jesus. And I think perhaps that would be the better reading here. It is unlikely that Paul is writing a letter to the saints, the Christians in Ephesus, but specifically the ones who are steadfast and that this letter is not addressed to those that might be in paths of disobedience. I don't think he's dividing the congregation at this point, but he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, that is, those who believe in Christ Jesus. Now notice that those two thoughts go together. Paul writes as an apostle, which means this is the word of God, and he writes it to believers, which means this letter can now do its work in their lives. If he was writing to unbelievers, they are spiritually dead to this word. The word is living and active, but to an unbeliever, it is lifeless, it is meaningless. They might find it to be interesting, but it is not going to sanctify them. It's not going to teach them truth in an illuminating way. The word doesn't function like that in an unbeliever's life. What the unbeliever needs is the word to function in a salvific way. It has to open up their eyes for the first time and bring them to life. God has to cause in them the new birth, and he does it through the word. But Paul is writing to the saints in Ephesus, and because this is the word of God, and because they are saints, this word can now do its work in their life. It's going to do things in their life in accordance with God's will, and our prayer is that it would do the same in our lives. What is it that Paul hopes this word will accomplish in the life of the saints in Ephesus? That leads us to verse 2. What he hopes that this word will accomplish in the lives of the saints in Ephesus is grace and peace. His opening desire that he states plainly is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's akin to a prayer. The opening blessing, the opening greeting is that grace and peace would be to them. So what does that mean? As I thought about it this week, it becomes obvious that there's something of a theological tension in that one verse. The theological tension is that he is writing to believers, 
And the believers, by virtue of the fact that they are saved, alive in Christ, these believers already have grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they are believers, they have grace and peace. This is what is true of us in the gospel. Grace is ours in Christ. Peace with God is ours through faith in Christ. We have this. And Paul opens and says, I really want you to have this. That's the theological tension. So, so how do we understand that? What does that mean to Christians? The answer perhaps comes by looking at the big picture of this book. You'll often hear me say, as you begin any biblical book, pay attention to those introductory verses or that first paragraph or maybe even the first chapter. It is often the case that the opening thoughts in a biblical book give you something of a blueprint of what's ahead. I found it to be the case teaching through the Bible that so many biblical books open with a, with a microcosm of the message that we played out through the rest of the book. It makes me think of the underground map that I used to look at as a boy before going down onto the London underground. We grew up about an hour east of London, an hour on the train that is, my mum didn't drive, so we would walk everywhere as kids. And we didn't always go away on vacation in the summers. And my mum would feel bad about this. She felt like we were missing out. So one thing she would do occasionally in the summers is put us on a train headed for London. And we would go an hour from our rural farming town and we would end up in London, and if you come from our direction, the first train station you land at is called Liverpool Street. So we would get off the train at Liverpool Street, and the idea is we would go and see some touristy things that day and then go home on the train in the evening. And I remember so clearly getting off the overground train at Liverpool Street, and then you take some steps down, and there's this enormous map of the London Underground. And I used to just love looking at this map. Lots and lots of different colors with all of the different lines. And the idea is you would, you would acclimatize to the map and what line you had to take and how many stops you would go on. And once you've done that, you then go down a few more steps to the underground and you take the relevant tube. The biblical books are a little bit like that map. In their introductions... They give you something of a blueprint of what's coming ahead. So you've got to pay attention in those first few verses. And I think in verse 2, Paul is giving us just a hint of what's around the corner. In the book of Ephesians, there's a very, very easy divide between chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. In chapters 1 through 3, what Paul does is he tells us what is true of us in Christ. That's it. He makes very few demands of us. He gives us very few commandments, exhortations. He simply labors the truth of our reality in the gospel. Consider verse 3, just by way of example. Blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is true of you today, Christian. Every spiritual blessing is yours in the heavenly places. That's who you are. And then he just goes on to unpack that, verse after verse after verse. Then he gets to a prayer. What do you pray for someone who has everything? That's the nature of his prayer in 1 through 3. Then, at chapter 4 and following, the letter turns a corner. In chapter 4, Paul says, Now, because these things are true of you, this is what you are to do. This is how you respond. And it's there that we find the imperatives, the commands. Fueled by a knowledge of one through three, this is who we are in Christ, four through six says in response, this is how you are to live your lives. So, with that bigger picture in view, it is reasonable to understand that in verse 2 of chapter 1, when Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says that to believers, he intends for them to do two things with it. He intends for them to simply appreciate the grace and the peace they have in the gospel. To simply be reminded of who they are in Christ. And he intends for them to act upon it. To respond to that grace and to that peace, exercising it in their daily lives. One commentator summarizes it by saying, Paul's desire is that they would appreciate and appropriate the grace of God. This week, I have been struggling to come up with a sermon title. Barbara texts me. She's faithful on Wednesday. How are those sermon titles coming along? I have a love-hate relationship with sermon titles. They love to pursue me in the middle of the night. I hate coming up with one every week. I'm not gifted in that sense at all. And I really like that idea to appreciate and appropriate. And my challenge this week was, is there a way in that which I can phrase it that's a little bit more manageable? And, and I couldn't. I think the sermon that ended up going down on paper is embracing the grace of God, which I intend for you to understand to mean those two things. And you can phrase it however you like. But the theology of Ephesians and the theology of verse 2 of chapter 1 is that we would know who we are, we would know this grace, and we would respond to it. So let's think about those two things this evening. To appreciate the grace of God. You have got to know who you are as a Christian. In order to live a steadfast life that honors the Lord, you have got to know who you are. You have to know the truth of the gospel as it relates to your life. If you don't, you will not walk out a path of obedience. If you forget who you are, in Christ, 
you start to behave like you are not in Christ. The implication is we are very fickle. We forget these things so readily. We have new hearts, but the flesh remains. And there are times when the flesh is so strong. I have, I have known myself in church to be singing wonderful songs about the grace of God and what is true of me in the gospel. And my heart is attuned to that grace in the moment of singing. And I have known minutes later to be fighting in my own strength, completely oblivious to the fact that I'm saved by grace. That's how quickly your heart turns away from these doctrines. Oftentimes, when I counsel and you, and you dig into the issue, why are we, why are we here? What's the problem? And, and you get beyond the realities of life and get down into the theology that your heart is espousing to cause these issues, often it is that the, the counselee is believing an untruth about who they are in Christ. When you really get down to it, somewhere along the way they've picked up something that isn't true about themselves. And they are failing to assert that which is true about themselves. And the counseling session from then on simply follows an articulation of the gospel and a training of our hearts to believe and to hold fast to the grace of God. You have got to know who you are in Christ. How do you do it? By way of implication now from this text, it is not that Paul is saying this. This is best practice. Number one, you have got to live your life in this book. How do you remind your fickle heart of who you are in the gospel? You've got to live your life in this book. To some measure, your life has to be oriented around the Word of God because it is there that the truth of the grace and peace that comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is articulated. It is not primarily articulated in a commentary or a Christian book or a journal article or in a blog post, not primarily there. God has given us His Word, and that's where we find out who we are in Christ. Now, just like the word membership, you won't find the words quiet time in the Bible. And I don't mind what you call it, but it is wise to be in this book daily. To daily open this book and to refresh your heart to the truth of who you are before a holy God covered by the blood of Christ, made right with Him. Yeah. Notice, at the very end of the letter, Paul finishes by saying, verse 24, grace be with all of you. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, grace to you. It's my desire, I want grace to be to you. He finishes the letter by saying, grace be with you. 
And Paul does this in a number of his letters. And more than a few people have noted that that slight inflection, it is a repetition of thought with a slight inflection. I open the letter by saying, grace to you, this is what I want. And then he closes and saying, now grace be with you. It seems to suggest that Paul himself understood that by virtue of the simple reading of this letter, there would be a manifestation of God's grace to his people. By the simple reading of this letter, God's grace would be imparted to them. Paul understood the word of God to be a necessary means by which the grace of the gospel would be to you. Now, as I say this, I know that there are possibly several, many Christians who come to church here every Sunday and who do not open the Word of God from one Sunday to the next. That the last time you opened God's Word was last Sunday. I'm keenly aware as we come together every Sunday that this could be the first time you've looked at your Bible since last Sunday. If that is you, please, let me encourage you to be transparent with someone this evening. Speak to me, speak to an elder, speak to a friend. Just say, my life is not where it ought to be as it relates to this book. I see it. I understand it. I understand that I should be in this and it's for my good, but I'm not there. A small amount of accountability goes an awfully long way. We are here to help one another. So please determine to live your life in this book. Another way in which grace would be to us, in which we would appreciate the grace of the gospel, is through prayer. This is the other side of the coin, Bible reading and prayer. Now, as you spend time with me in the years ahead, you'll come to learn that I don't even like to call it prayer, but I prefer the term communion. Communion with God, and I I like that term because all too often as we say prayer, we tend to think of simply asking God for things. There's nothing wrong with asking God for things. God delights to have his children come to him and to express their dependence on him. God delights in you doing that. But asking for things from God is but one room in the mansion that is prayer. It is one room. We are to spend some time there, but we are to be very at home everywhere in that mansion, which would include praising Him, which would include repenting of our sins before Him, which would include rehearsing gospel truths to our Father in heaven. This is why I say, pray the Bible. I don't trust myself in my prayer time. Without this word to guide me, I know my prayers become very self-centered. 
when I open up God's word and I simply pray the thing that I read, now I know my prayers are biblical. They are running along the truth. And what do those prayers sound like? Simply an articulation of who I am before him. Father, I praise you this morning that I am a son of the living God. I praise you this morning that you have washed my sins away. Father, I praise you that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. And on and on it goes. Prayer is mean, supposed to be one of the means by which we are edified, by which we are reminded of God's grace in our lives. And I say that knowing that for many, your prayer life could be summed up as simply giving thanks before you eat. If that is your prayer life, please be transparent with somebody this evening. Ask for some accountability. Set achievable goals. Set aside a time in your day where you are resolved to merely commune with God. I read just recently one of many biographies on Eric Little. Laura had recommended it. She didn't tell me that I'd be crying like a baby in an airport somewhere as I finished the book. One of the things I marked down in that book is Eric's little, Eric Little's teaching when he said, mark an hour a day for prayer. He said, first of all, mark an hour a day for prayer. Second, Keep it. He then said, there are many who will say they can pray at any time of the day, and most likely they will not pray at all. Let me encourage you along the spiritual discipline of setting aside a time in your day when you are committed to meet with the Lord and to commune with Him. Because it is one of the primary means by which we are reminded of who we are in Christ. A third way in which grace would be to us, all I'm doing right now is thinking through the appreciating. Paul writes this verse that we would appreciate and appropriate the grace and peace that is ours in the gospel. The practical means by which we appreciate that grace is through the Bible and through prayer and finally through fellowship. Through fellowship. Now, I want to be very specific here. We sometimes mislabel time with other Christians as fellowship. It isn't necessarily. After this evening service, you can come and speak to me about sports, and that would be fine, and we could have a long conversation about the sport of your choosing, I'm not going to count it as fellowship. I have no issue with that conversation, none at all. But it's not fellowship because I could have the same conversation with an unbeliever. There was nothing in our conversation that was a distinguishing mark of our faith. So it's not fellowship. Fellowship is when Christians enjoy the gospel together. When you enjoy the gospel together, now you're having fellowship. 
And fellowship is one of the means that God has ordained by which we are reminded of who we are. Tell me how you were saved. Share with me your testimony of faith. And as you do so, we are both reminded of the truth of the gospel. I'm reminded that your sins are forgiven and so are mine. I'll share with you how I was saved. And as I do so, we are reminded of eternal truths in Christ Jesus that belong to us. Tell me what book you're reading. I'll ask you that question if you hang out with me long enough. It's one of my favorite. Because it is a guaranteed way to get onto spiritual things. And as we do and we rejoice in the truth of the gospel, we are enjoying the gospel together, having fellowship and being reminded of the grace that we have received in Christ. So, preaching to the choir, you're here on a Sunday evening. Praise the Lord. Race towards any expression of fellowship that you can find. Sunday morning and Sunday evening, absolutely. As we move into our week, Seek out expressions of fellowship. There are many that happen in this church regularly. There are home groups. There are Bible studies. There are lots of different ways in which we come together through the week. And I want to encourage you to seek them out. And they don't need to be formalized. Open up your home. Have people in for dinner and determine to have a spiritual conversation because you will be reminded of the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Fellowship is one way that God uses that. So that is what it means to appreciate the grace and peace of God in our lives. To practice these spiritual disciplines regularly so as to train our heart in right thinking that we would be grateful. As a marker in our life, we would be grateful for the truth of the gospel as it has come to us. Now what about that second half? Appropriating it. Exercising it. Giving it feet with which to run in our lives. What does it mean to appropriate? Very simply... It means to obey the commands of Scripture. To obey the imperatives that are binding on us as Christians. That second half of the book of Ephesians. But I want to be very, very careful as I say that. To appropriate the grace of God means that we are found faithful, obedient to the commands of Scripture. But we need to be so careful. Here's why. Because people tend to do one of two things when they're presented with a command in the Bible. Christians will go one of two ways. Some Christians will be presented with an obligation, a responsibility from Scripture, and they will diminish its importance in their lives. They will demote it. They will devalue it. They will place it far, far, far down on their to-do list, on their priority list. Those Christians love to bask in the reality of God's love for them. They love to champion the grace of God in the gospel. And they'll say such things as, My sins are covered. 
God is doing his work in my life. He will see me to glory. I don't need to worry that much about obedience. We call that antinomianism. You have no place for the law in your life. Other Christians will be presented with a command and they will elevate it. They will raise it up so high and they will chase it so hard that they lose any sight of God's grace in their life. They strive towards obedience, but it is apart from any understanding of the grace that God has given them as the very means by which they are to obey. They create a burden for their back so heavy it crushes them. Outwardly, it may appear that everything is together and they're leading a very obedient life. But it is an obedience that does not honor the Lord. We call that legalism. And by and large, all of us will fall into one of those two groups. Some of us are antinomianists by nature. Some of us are legalists. And both of them are not the means by which we appropriate the grace of the gospel. So, how do we appropriate the grace of the gospel? We find that middle ground, which is not, which is not to say, wherever you land, you take a healthy dose of the other. That's a misstep that's often committed in counseling. I have before me a stereotypical legalist, classic. So he just needs a healthy dose, dose of antinomianism. Wrong. They're both the same error. They're both derived from the same point. They just went in different directions. So you don't counter it with the other tendency. You counter both with a healthy dose of God's grace. That's the middle ground. You bask in God's grace. And having done so with the fuel of God's grace, you then obey. Every act of obedience in your life should be a response. You're not obeying to please God. He loves you in Christ. You have his favor. You're not obeying to win it. But nor do you diminish it. It's there. It's binding. He saved you by sending his son to die. He now wants you to respond. There are binding commandments on the Christian life. Responsibilities. And as we seek to obey them, we do so as a right response to the salvation that we have received. Now can you see why it is wise counsel to be in this book and in prayer and in fellowship on and on and on every day in your life. I have got to renew my heart to the truth of the gospel if I am to obey the commands of scripture in a way that honors God. If my heart is not alive to the gospel, I will create a rod for my back that crushes me each and every day. I can't afford to not be in this book. Amen. I can't afford to not seek the Lord in communion. I can't afford to live my life as a lone ranger Christian. I've 
got to be with the saints. Because I need to refresh my heart to the truth of the gospel. Then I can obey. And notice, when your heart is full to bursting of God's grace, oh, how his imperatives are found to be light. Oh, how his imperatives are found to be light. A joy, a delight to obey. There is nothing that God could ask of me that is too much when my heart is full of grace. When my heart has the gospel in full view, ask anything of me. Take anything of me. All I want to do is obey in gratitude to the grace and peace that I have received through Christ. That is what it means to appropriate this grace. Now we begin Paul's exposition next week of who we are in Christ. And it goes on and on. It is wonderful. We will spend some time here. It's going to be some time before we get to chapter 4 of the letter. The challenge for us is to keep both in view. That over the next few months and weeks, our hearts would be soft and ready to appreciate the grace of the gospel. And at the same time, we would keep in view our responsibility as Christians and we would appropriate that grace. When that is true of us, then God's word will be having its intended effect in our lives. May grace be to us and peace that comes from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the grace and the peace that comes from the gospel. You have saved us and given us this grace and this peace, and we are thankful. As we have considered this one verse this evening, would you help us to both appreciate and to appropriate these realities? Father, may we be those who know this grace, who know who we are in Christ. May our hearts be attuned to the truths of the gospel. May we do it through the means that you have given us, your word and communion with you and fellowship. May we be found faithful to be pursuing these disciplines. And may we be so thankful for the grace and the peace that is ours in Christ. Lord, help us to obey. Help us to obey the imperatives that do rest on our shoulders. You want obedience from us. Having saved us, you want obedience from us. May we be found faithful, obedient to the commands of Scripture, not in our own strength, not belittling them and not pursuing them in our own strength, but only ever responding to the requirements of Scripture 
as a right response of gratitude to the gospel. May our hearts be full. And in that strength, may we obey. In Jesus' name, amen.